0: Welcome to The Lead, a podcast about how to get ahead in the news industry from the people who did. I'm Jacqueline Ganun. Today, I'm talking with Ryan Pryor, a journalist who writes about health and science. He has bylines in CNN, The Guardian, and Insider, among other publications. And in 2015, he wrote, directed, and produced a documentary about chronic fatigue syndrome. Ryan's first novel is called The Long Haul. It's about long COVID and came out last year and now he writes about long COVID and other chronic diseases as a journalist-in-residence at the Century Foundation. Today, we're chatting about Ryan's work and about telling untold stories about health, disability, and disease. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is produced by the Cox Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership at the University of Georgia's Grady College. To learn more, go to grady.uga.edu slash coxinstitute. Now, here's the lead. Hey, Ryan. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here.
0: So, when did you know that you first wanted to be a journalist?
1: Um, I always knew I wanted to be a writer. Loved uh, literature in high school. I studied uh, English in college, so journalism was a way to um, get paid to be a writer. And you know, ultimately, my goal was to write books. But in the meantime, over the past uh, five or ten years, you know, a lot of my bread and butter has been. Writing articles, and I, obviously that's a, a great way to stay involved in the news and to find good stories, and um, do, ultimately use those to do long, long-form projects. But um, journalism is very much like a day-to-day way to to stay stay involved in public affairs and to um, find stories and to be paid to be a writer.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I have a similar kind of story. In high school, I loved literature. Um, but I didn't necessarily want to be like an English professor or anything like that. So I was like, oh, I can write and get paid to do it. <laughs> um, so during your career, you've worked at CNN as a science and health features writer during COVID. And then you also directed and produced a documentary called Forgotten Plague, which is about chronic fatigue syndrome. So, how did you then become interested in telling those stories about science and health and healthcare?
1: Yeah. And a lot of it comes from my own uh, personal experience of, of being a high school student. Um, I was 16 and 17. I was um, going to uh, Warner Robbins High School in, in middle Georgia. And I developed a, um, a complex disease uh, that forced me to, to drop out of a majority of my um, junior year of, of high school. And I went to 16 different doctors and we couldn't, you know, it was a rheumatologist and infectious disease and neurologist and um, all these different doctors couldn't couldn't diagnose it and couldn't really get to a treatment. And I was on a hospital homebound program to um, get through some of my, my schoolwork that that year. So my interest in in science and in diseases and especially in um, curing the incurable, like the scientific process of how do we improve human life, is really um, rooted in my own experiences. Um, so many of my stories I've written over the years have some of the most exciting stories have been about other diseases and it? but it, it's that same uh, narrative arc where someone a character has a problem aka a-, a disease um, and then what do they do about it? Many people start a movement or they start clinical trials. Um, and some some of the most heroic people do find solutions. And so that's been a, a big trend throughout my career. But I first wrote about it when I was a collegiate correspondent for USA Today. I was at UGA and I wrote a piece in 2012 about my own experiences with chronic fatigue syndrome. And that that caught interest in ways that nothing else I'd ever had previously written had. And I got in touch with the um, national and really the international advocacy movement around um, our disease And use that as the um, inspiration to we did a a Kickstarter campaign to crowdfund a bunch of money to go on a big trip across the country and nine different film production trips in about nine different states and interview people from Harvard and Columbia and Stanford. And it really um, changed my life and really gave me hope that scientific innovation can improve human life.
0: Yeah, I I think that's so interesting that your like, you know, your own personal experience, like you said, informed that storytelling and all those projects. I think that's really cool. And do you, did you like the documentary, like video aspect of it? Do you see yourself doing another video project in the future?
1: My interest was always, you know, I really loved like Thoreau and Hemingway and um was was really interested in, at one point, in being a novelist. And then, you know, now I kind of consider myself like a nonfiction author. One of my favorite parts of doing the documentary was, was writing the narr- narrative script. It's mostly interviews, but of course, but the uh, narrative arc um, which is my own character which is like a a journalistic a patient journalist on a quest that was really enjoyable but yeah in in one of the other things that's nice about doing documentary film is that so much of it's in person and i wrote i wrote my Book about long COVID, mostly not in person, um, mostly isolated. And as an extrovert, I'm newly attracted to documentary film from a um, purely like a human contact standpoint. I think you do, you know, get a lot more when you when you travel and 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 tell stories that way. And I think audiences do relate to documentaries in ways that they do not relate to um, books. I think it, it takes about eleven hours to read my book uh, if you listen to it uh, in audiobook form. And our documentary was about an hour and 20 minutes. And I do, I'm very mindful of like people's attention spans and um, how they absorb information. And the biggest reason I I don't want to do documentaries is just, it's a huge amount of work on fundraising and on distribution. And I like to produce thing, the writing and and the directing, but the the budget part of it and the distribution part was less interesting to me. So that was, at least right now, I put that on hiatus, but I would gladly go back into the documentary film if, if those other two boxes were checked.
0: Yeah, I think like during COVID, exactly like you said, that isolation really got to a lot of storytellers. And like we all had to adapt to figure out how to interview people and how to talk to people. Um, so I that definitely makes sense about the human contact part of that. And so, like you just mentioned, you are now a novelist. So your book, it's called The Long Haul. It came out last November. So can you talk about what that book is about and how you came to write it?
1: It tells the story of of the national or international advocacy movements around long COVID, around acknowledging the the long-term effects, the long-term disabling effects of SARS-CoV-2, that between 10 and 30% of people uh, have some kind of uh, either a lingering symptom or an actual disability. Um, And some are, you know, become fully disabled and can't work at all because of a situation that extends from their first uh, COVID infection. And this was something based on my, you know, report my own experiences with a post viral disease or or a post infectious um, syndrome and having been disabled um, to a degree for much of my life, that it was extremely alarming to me and extremely alarming to our, the whole chronic illness community in those early days of, of the pandemic is we knew that there was going to be this, what we now call a mass disabling event. Obviously, the, it gets a lot of coverage, the amount, number of deaths and the number of hospitalizations and the number of case counts. And those are, those are, those get coverage because they're, you know, tangible metrics that um, people can uh, report off of. But the, the long-term disabling effects um, don't than themselves the easy quantification that's one reason why the story gets lost um but from an emotional standpoint to to know the severity of what i had gone through as a high school student and to know that tens of millions of people around the world were going through the exact same thing or were getting ready to go through it but just didn't know that was like an existential crisis and that was that really was why i felt like it, i The best thing I could do with my life was to write this book, um, to chronicle this, and to warn people, but also to validate their suffering and ultimately to help point policymakers toward their uh, solutions.
0: Yeah, I think that's definitely so important. And I've seen a lot of things, you know, a lot of writers on Twitter that have been like, this is a really big event and, you know, no one's talking about it. So that's definitely like a huge important thing to that's come out of this pandemic yeah and so have you seen any kind of impacts from your book so far or like what like you mentioned that the impact that you hope to have is just raise awareness so have you kind of seen that come so far or do you hope that happens in the future still
1: there's interesting ways that um some of some of the impact has been on my own life and I was just like one of the biggest things I learned about through this process is just that you know I'm very extroverted so I, I will keep that in mind um and then this is—it's had really amazing effects on my career, which isn't necessarily the effect on society, but I, in my own life, it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's created a huge number of new opportunities, and so I'm, you know, doing some consulting on a um, a biotech startup that's like creating a, a new business model for long for how to scale up long COVID clinics. I'm doing some consulting with the um, HHS um, office of long COVID at the, at the federal level. And I'm do, you know, doing this think tank work. I have a new job with the, with the Century Foundation. So I'm a reporter, but also like a um, kind of a, a policy wonk and an advocate. So those are all been co- cool things. And then the the book was exhorted in Newsweek magazine, and it was reviewed in a science magazine, reviewed in LA Times. And just got off the phone with a reporter from CNN who's going to do a piece about it. So those are all good for me, but obviously, what the point of all this is to actually change structures, change society, change hearts and minds. And I think the the shifts have been gradual, they're, they're less immediate than I would have liked. Um And the book is part of a, a larger set of really, you know, thousands of people doing a lot of amazing work in the scientists, policymakers, patients, advocates, family members. And so what a lot of my goal is just to channel all that momentum into, into one uh, discrete package with this book. But no, I think that over the next one to five years. I absolutely see this as is the um a turning point in scientific history and I wanted to be a part of it by writing this book.
0: Yeah, that's awesome that it kind of gave you those avenues, like you said, to impact people in all these different ways.
1: Yeah. only I, really, I saw my life as like being like a journalist and then being an author. And I thought that was like the best like you know, that was the epitome of success. So then consulting with biotech companies was never on my radar. And I find it actually incredibly rewarding. And I think that, that being part of the solution has been exciting in, in ways. And people come to me with opportunities that, that were not part of me. I mean, my plan was like, well, I'll write one book, maybe I'll write two, three, four, five, and I'll you know come back to writing daily journalism in between the books or in between the documentaries. But um, this has opened up some new avenues that uh, I'm really exciting.
0: So going back a little bit, what were some of the things that you did during your time at UGA that helped you get to where you are
1: now? I did a little bit of writing for the Red and Black, just, just a tad, and I you know, did some internships in D.C. and elsewhere um, that, that prepped me for some of this work. And the, I, mean, I was a member of fraternity. All of that was leading to um, what happened in my, my senior year of, of college when I, um, a couple of friends and I started a, a magazine called the Georgia Political Review. And that was probably my most enduring legacy as a, as a UGA student and that the magazine um, still exists today. And my vision for the for that publication was that I wanted to, to be something kind of like The Economist. It was a nonpartisan. I really hated this partisan rhetoric. I think that's really damaging to society and to our country. And it was, uh, I continue to believe that that, that sort of thing um, undermines. You know what it means to be an American. um, This hyperpartisanship. So, Georgia Political Review was largely um, meant to elevate the discourse and to separate us from these um, right-wing, left-wing viewpoints and to have a a communal uh, dialogue. And I was, you know, continually impressed with the writing that comes out of it a, a decade after it was founded. And that that starting a magazine and building building a business plan, building a website, building a staff. You know, we hired um or we didn't, we didn't really pay anybody, but we we brought on like thirty people that first semester. A lot of writers and editors and designers and business people, and it was absolutely the most rewarding part of my entire uh, college career. And that's helped me helps build my confidence for for uh, building a, a nonprofit and directing a documentary film later. And uh, I I suppose maybe I'll uh, do a a media startup in the future. But the Georgia Pollock review was really, uh, really invigorating. It was just really exciting to be part of.
0: Yeah, that's definitely enduring because I know, I think he's the current editor-in-chief of GPR. We have a class together. So that's really cool. So now kind of continuing with like, you know, political-ish stuff, um, you're now a fellow slash journalist in residence at the Century Foundation, which is a think tank. Um, So I'm kind of curious about that intersection of journalism and being at an organization like a think tank. So, can you talk about what that role entails?
1: Yeah, the the and the role is now growth uh, almost perfectly organically stemming from uh, the book. I interviewed a, one of the senior fellows at the Century Foundation who who has a real vision for disability policy and um and so we we had several interviews and then we built rapport and then, you know, I had to leave my job at CNN in order to um have enough time to to finish the book and so then i i after i turned in the draft i let her know i was a free agent and so we we put put the wheels in motion to to create this new role you know, think tanks have fellows um journalists you know usually journalists work at uh, magazines or newspapers or, or tv stations and journalists less traditionally would work at, at think tanks but the part of the theory here is that century foundation is leading this this really incredible um this disability economic justice collaborative it's a collaborative of about 40 different advocacy organizations and think tanks working in various aspects of the policymaking ecosystem or advocacy for disabilities. And so in my work, my my two major interests as a reporter as are in, in science and in democracy. And I think disability is a, a fusion of, of democracy and science. And it's really about applied human rights, that disability rights are just like civil rights or just like any other thing that, that matters. And so part, parts of that role are in leading narrative change in conjunction with this, this larger disability collaborative. And then parts of that are in just writing, you know, writing, writing stories for publications. And then more frequently I'll be, I'll be working now as a columnist for psychology today. And that that'll be a blog is called patient revolution dispatches from the front lines of science and democracy. And in a way, it's like I'm I'm, in, I'm embedding as a report you know usually you have people who are reporters who embed in with soldiers in a, in a war zone or they embed in a political campaign. In this case, I'm embedding in the disability community and the primary outlet will be through um, one of many outlets will be through psychology today. So it's an interesting situation to to be in a be where um, you know, I wrote the job description, I wrote, wrote the work plan, I raised the funding for the role. we it's it's the stars aligned in a whole bunch of different ways. You know, it's a it's kind of a a new idea that this journalist and residence model is does exist, but it's not. Um, I would say it's it's rare, but I think it's something that um, more people should try, and I think that it's a way to uh, make journalism work from as, from a business standpoint, but also from a um, applied social change uh, standpoint.
0: Yeah, I really like what you said about disability kind of being the intersection of science and democracy, and like a facet of that. I think that's really a really fascinating way to look at that. Um, and I know the Journalism College here has a covering poverty initiative with a disability beat guide. And so that's becoming like increasingly important in journalism is just, you know, writing about these things in a way that is, you know, correct and respectful.
1: That's, so, that's so good to hear. No, that's, that's music to our ears.
0: Yeah. And so finally, speaking of students again, um, what advice do you have for aspiring journalists? Maybe Especially those who might be interested in the kind of subjects that you cover,
1: yeah. I, I think you know, understanding the the nexus of, Lived experience and expertise is 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 and that's like a important part of my DNA as a writer is that understanding that the the people who have lived experience of a problem and um, that could be you know living with po- living in poverty, um, living with a disability, people who have been incarcerated or have been you know part of the criminal justice system. Interviewing those people and in, in telling those stories and bringing them out, the voices of the marginalized can can be one of the places where the, there's the greatest level of insight. And I think that one of the first things I ever got piece of advice I got from a reporter is that the Usually the people who make it into the newspaper are the ones who either own the bank or who rob the bank. But as features writers, our, the goal is to write about everybody else and everybody else has a lot to say and a lot of insight and a lot of wisdom. You know, don't, don't focus so much on people who rob banks or own banks is one 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 thing that I would want to impart to people and uh, understand that there's, there's experience at the margins of, the vulnerable parts of society and then another you know key tip that i these are really interesting things are just like reporters just sort of like pull me aside in the newsroom one day to like hey kid here's here's a tip but i was a millennial i was working in back when millennials were young i was working at newsweek and the daily beast as an intern and uh like two two blocks away from the white house it was a cool job our national security reporter took me out to lunch and he's like you know, he's a Gen X guy. He's like, you know, you want to know why all you millennials are bad at journalism? You guys didn't grow up with the phone. You guys don't ever know how to call people on the phone. You know, he's like, the reason why this just watch me. The reason why I'm good at journalism is I call people. And and I, it's just insanely basic. It's, it's startlingly basic. And I'm sometimes don't even want to say that. But it's just that and I, I see people write bad stories now. And I, I just look at the number of time, people they quote and I can just tell that they just didn't use the phone and the number one tool of journalists is to use the phone and just reach, just really, really talk to people. And especially in our field, you know, talk to disabled people is is the key mantra for disability journalism. And, I, and that would obviously extend to every other policy field that you might be uh, doing is just talk to the people who are experiencing the problem. And a lot of bad reporting comes from, from, from literally just not doing that. That's
0: good advice, just pick up the phone. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it people people really enjoy being listened to. So, uh, and that's a, it's a privilege as a journalist to be able to um, give them the opportunity to, to tell their stories.
0: Well, thank you so much, Ryan. I really enjoyed our chat today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you again to Ryan for joining me on this episode, and thanks for tuning into the Lead. I'm your host Jacqueline Ganon. Our executive producer is Charlotte Varnum, and this show is supported by the Cox Institute. To keep up with the Lead and hear more from media leaders, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts, and be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at The Lead Podcast. See you next time.